0: You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Last week we saw the first human sin unfolding before our eyes in this chapter. Adam and Eve had been created by God and placed in the paradise of the garden of Eden, a lush, fertile garden full of fruit trees and empty of sin. Genesis 2 9 tells us, out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant for, for, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How many trees were in that garden, we don't know, but it's reasonable to assume that there were many, many, many trees there and presumably every type of fruit was represented there. Oranges and apples and mangoes and pineapples, jackfruit, bananas, even durian. They're not about to go hungry in this garden. These trees were abundantly productive, full of healthy fruit, and they're attractive to look at too. It's a picture of paradise on earth. Adam and Eve had only one restriction placed on them. Eat of the fruit of any tree in this garden except one. Now in the midst of the garden there were two specific trees that are named in scripture, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was special about these trees is not actually explained here. But I suspect there was nothing particularly exceptional about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I doubt that it contained any magical properties and it didn't really need to. It was enough that God had commanded them not to eat its fruit. It was off limits to them. And it's not like they needed to eat it either. Given the abundance of the other fruit trees to them, With such variety they could hardly want for more, you would think. But as we know, they did. And their actions changed the world. The tree of life pops up again in scripture at the end of this chapter and again right at the end of the Bible. There's clearly something special about this particular tree. And we'll get to that later on. And we'll read here in Genesis 3 that Eve was enticed to eat some of the forbidden fruit and she gave some to her husband who was there with her. Now, you might expect that Eve would be the one to blame for first disobeying God, but that's not where the Bible places the blame. Rather, it puts the blame squarely on Adam. But before we get to what all that means in the context of the Bible and theology and God's plan of redemption, It's worthwhile reviewing the strategy that the serpent used to entice Eve in the first place. It's worthwhile because his strategy hasn't changed in all the generations since. And the reason the devil hasn't ever changed his scheme is because he hasn't needed to. We're still suckers for it. And what we saw last week is that the devil's tactics begin with a lie. Often it will be a lie that's planted as a seed of doubt as he did with Eve, did God really say? Then when he sees us sniffing the bait, he feels confident to lie blatantly, you will not surely die. And when we take that bait, we're hooked. There's no getting off. It's a simple matter for the devil to reel us in. There's something about forbidden fruit that appeals to us all. And that's a consequence of Adam and Eve's failure to resist the serpent in the beginning. Eve looked at the the forbidden fruit and saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was to be desired to make one wise. The process of temptation and sin begins with a look. A look at something that's forbidden to us. Now an accidental glance at something forbidden is not the problem. It's the look that lingers. It's the look that goes back a second time and a third time. Eve didn't glance over at this tree and quickly turn away from it. She looked long enough to find it desirable. And she began to rationalise about how it would help her meet some of her needs. Were they needs or were they just wants? Whatever they were, she didn't even realise that she had them until that very moment. You might recall Paul writing to the Roman church in Romans chapter 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. Imagine if God had said, every tree is there for you to eat from. There is none forbidden. There is none off limits to you. Then Adam and Eve would not have known sin because there is no law to break. Instead, Eve was awakened to covetousness when God said, this one tree is off limits to you. Paul goes on to say in Romans 7, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, as Adam and Eve were. But when the commandment came, Sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Was there a problem with the commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve? Of course not. It was designed to provide life and to protect life and to preserve life. Paul says, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that what, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Therein lies the danger for us. The moment we begin to entertain the idea, desire is awakened and it's only a matter of time until we've convinced ourselves that this is good for us any young man who has ever struggled with porn will tell you that, the first look may have been accidental, there may have been an explicit scene in a Hollywood movie that initially shocked or even scared him, but the next look began to entice and it began to stir feelings in him he may not have even realised he had, just like happened to Eve And so he began to search for more of it. And each look anchored the hook more firmly into him until there was no escape. When should that young man have turned away? When should Eve have turned away? The moment the serpent opened its mouth to talk to her, the moment it raised questions about God's goodness and generosity and integrity, the longer you listen, the longer you look, the harder it becomes to turn away. The Apostle Pot John described the process of succumbing to temptation like this. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, that is the craving for sensual gratification, and the lust of the eyes, the greedy longings of the mind, and the pride of life, assurance in one's own resources, these do not come from the Father, but are from the world itself. The Bible tells us that Eve was deceived By the serpent, while Adam blatantly disobeyed God. That's because Adam had the command firsthand from God not to eat from the tree, while Eve only heard it second hand from Adam. Therefore Adam is considered the guilty one, because not only did he do nothing to stop it in the first place, but he willfully indulged in it himself. And as Adam was the very first human being from whom every other human being is descended. He's considered our representative. Therefore, the Bible considers Adam's sin to also apply to us. I described it last week as a spiritual DNA. We've inherited physical characteristics from Adam, arms and legs and heart and lungs and mind and vocal cords and muscles and more, but we've also inherited his spiritual characteristics. A living soul, as some older translations put it, which adds an immortal aspect to our being, which means that though we will all die physically one day, there is a part of us that lives on after death. But sadly, thanks to Adam's original sin and our continued sin, that immortal part is cut off from God. And so while we all have a spirit that lives on, that spirit is dead towards God. So let's read our text starting at the very last verse of Genesis 2 And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field and that the Lord God had made And he said to the woman did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden And the woman said to the serpent we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden Neither shall you touch it lest you die Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. (coughs) Excuse me. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We've seen the process of temptation. It begins when we show an interest in something that's forbidden to us. And as that interest grows, we begin to rationalize why we must have it, just like Eve did. And once we've convinced ourselves of the rightness of it, or at least the lack of harm that will come from it, then we willfully indulge in it, just like Adam did. So we're all willingly deceived and we are all willfully disobedient. Truly we're children of our first parents. And what happened to Adam and Eve after eating the forbidden fruit? There was an instant change. Their eyes were opened and they realised that they were naked. Only two minutes ago, they were naked and not ashamed. But now they're scrambling to find something, anything, to cover up. Now one of the changes that happened to them was, it seems, an awakening of their consciences. What is the conscience? What does the conscience do? Simply put, the conscience is the inner sense of what is right and wrong. The conscience warns us when we want to do wrong and it prompts us to do right instead. It's God's law written on our hearts. And every person has it, even unbelievers. To use the terms of Genesis 3, the conscience is knowing good and evil. Before this, Adam and Eve had only known good. They'd never experienced nothing of evil. If you're in a perfect, sin-free paradise and you only know good, there's nothing for the conscience to do. But by their disobedience, they were awakened to evil and their conscience stirred to life. In that very instant... They knew that they had done wrong, even though they had no previous knowledge of wrong. And their immediate reaction was shame, guilt and shame. Now there is something to hide. Adam and Eve react by trying to cover up their bodies, or at least their private parts, which, funnily enough, only a few minutes ago was their public parts. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Why the first reaction to sin should manifest as shame about our bodies, I'm not entirely sure. But it did, and to this day, most of us prefer to keep most of our bodies covered up most of the time. Loincloths made of fig leaves are never going to last long. It doesn't take long for the leaves that fall from the tree during autumn to, to, to dry up and turn to dust and blow away. If Adam and Eve wanted to cover up, they'd need something better than leaves, which God will soon provide for them. I'll talk more about that in a future message because it's a particularly important part of God's response to man's sin. But for today, today, I want to look at the impact of sin, an impact that was completely unknown prior to this event. Firstly, of course, there was the instant shame and guilt and an immediate desire to cover up in a vain attempt to hide what they've done. Almost never do we want other people to know when we've done something wrong. We much prefer for it to remain hidden. We all do it. Now I'm an estimator for a builder in my day job and my task is to work out all the different materials and labour required to build this particular house on that specific block of land. And once I've worked out all the quantities, I raise orders and send them off to all the suppliers and the trades to get the work done. Accuracy is important. Any mistakes I make cost the business profit and it thereby puts both the future of the business and my job at risk. It's not only the missing materials that cost money, but it's also the delivery charges that shouldn't have been necessary. And it's the return trip cost for the tradie who couldn't finish his work and the delays from work that's not done when it should be. Let me tell you, no estimator likes other people to know he's made a mistake. We're all embarrassed and even ashamed by it. And we'd all prefer if we could hide the cost somewhere so that no one else finds out. And that's my automatic reaction to a simple mistake that anyone could make if they're busy or distracted. But what about when we deliberately do something wrong? Who likes to shout that from the rooftops? No one. That's who. That's why the more suspect, the more depraved parts of our society are usually kept hidden, conducted in back rooms, and in warehouses in industrial estates and buildings down dark alleyways. It's only in recent years that debauchery has been flaunted in public and even celebrated in our Western society. Most of the world still prefers to keep it hidden. And we have done that, historically, for centuries. Now when we sin, we want to hide it. We want to keep it a secret. Unless, of course... There is someone there with us who doesn't express their disapproval. Someone like Adam, watching on passively. In that case, we prefer to involve them too. We want to draw others in to justify our own wrong behaviour. See, I'm not the only one doing it. If you're going to blame me, you have to blame them too. If we can't hide our sin effectively, we'll try to hide behind someone else who's also doing it. But all along... We know we're doing wrong. Deep down, we know that we shouldn't have done that thing. Our conscience tells us that, the same conscience that was awakened there in the garden on that fateful day. Our biggest problem, of course, isn't that we try to hide our sin from each other. That's bad enough. But it's that we think we can hide it from God. Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day, and the man and his wife hid themselves, from the presence of the Lord God. If we try so hard to hide our sin from other people, how much more do we wish we could hide it from God? Now, of course, as Christians, we know that's impossible. God knows everything. God sees everything. There's nothing that escapes his notice. And, of course, we know, intellectually at least, that God already knew before we were even born that we were going to commit that sin. And still, He comes seeking us. But forbidden fruit is so enticing, so enticing that sometimes we forget that for just long enough to ensure that we do what we want to do. Sin in haste, repent at leisure is our philosophy. Now as Christians we know that God is gracious. Someone who's not actually a Christian once said, God is gracious, he has to forgive me, that's his job. So... We know that it is gracious, but we so often take advantage of that grace. We're so quick to indulge our passions and so slow to consider the consequences. And we're far too slow to consider the impact of our actions on ourselves, on others, and on our relationship with God. What else changed when Adam ate that fruit? When challenged by God, what was his first response? Because that's a natural inclination of ours too Although I bet it never crossed Adam's mind Before he took that fateful bite Adam said The woman you gave to be with me She gave me the fruit and I ate How does the woman respond to God's questioning? In just the same way The serpent deceived me and I ate Did Adam and Eve openly confess their sin before God? Here's the perfect opportunity God the same God who'd been walking with them side by side in the garden in the cool of day came to them and he came asking questions designed to draw out confession and repentance. But what did he get from them instead? He got the same response from both of them, blame shifting. It's one of our favourites even today. Don't blame me, blame him, blame her. I only did it because they wanted me to. It's not my fault. We learn to do that as toddlers. So Eve blames the serpent. It's the old, the devil made me do it excuse. And Adam does a similar thing. It's the woman's fault. Note that Adam didn't say, Eve gave me the fruit. He didn't say, my wife gave it to me. He said, the woman. You can almost hear him spit it out. The woman. Already, only moments after the act, their relationship is fractured. Already, there's a distance between them, and trust is broken. Minutes before, they were naked and not ashamed. There was an innocence and a trust there, but it's now being torn torn apart, and it's heartbreaking to read. I'm sure we've all seen or experienced relationships that have gone sour, that have broken down. It's painful to watch, and it's more painful to live through. That's just what we've witnessed here in this perfect paradise the breakdown of the first and the most perfect relationship. It's bad enough that they both try to shift the blame, and it's worse that Adam tries to shift it to his wife since he was the one who knew God's requirements. Therefore, he is without excuse. But Adam does more than blame his wife, he blames God. The woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's your fault, God, not mine. If you hadn't given me this woman, it would never have happened. What an accusation to level at the God of the universe. And what arrogance from Adam. Can you hear him implying that if you hadn't given me that woman, God, I would have been able to resist the temptation alone. I'm strong enough to withstand it. But you, you had to give me this woman to mess things up. It's all your fault. Now, I'm afraid if Eve hadn't succumbed, Adam would have anyway. Witness how passively he accepted the fruit from Eve. How little objection he raised. Unless any of us imagine that we would do better in that situation, I suggest we cast out that vain imagination. If the first man living in a perfect paradise, walking and talking face to face with God failed, Every single one of us would have also. Now there's more to the consequences of sin than what we've just explored, but that's enough for today. For now I want us to grasp how the process of enticement works and what the relational and the psychological impacts are. Sin affects every area of our lives and it manifests in everything we do and in everything we see. We'll get to more of that probably next week, but for now the pattern of temptation and the penalty for sin are clearly laid out for us in these early chapters of Genesis. James puts it this way in his letter in the New Testament. But each person is tempted when when he is lured and enticed by his desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's the process we saw Adam and Eve succumb to. The serpent successfully awakened a desire in Eve for the forbidden fruit. She saw how attractive it was, good for food, pleasant to look at, promising knowledge, and she shared it with her husband. Once you begin to entertain the delights of that forbidden fruit, it's only a matter of time before you indulge in it. The desire gives birth to sin. And there's only one outcome for sin, death. There's no other alternative. There's no other path that can be taken. It's set in stone from the very beginning. Sinclair Ferguson, a Scottish-born pastor and Bible teacher, talks about this process and the antidote in what he calls Lessons on Spiritual Anatomy. Stage 1. Temptation is fueled by our evil desires. The seeds of all sins are in our hearts, he says, and those who don't recognise that are in great danger. So antidote one is to know your heart and to guard it. Stage two. Temptation progresses by both negative and positive means. First we are lured and then we are enticed. We let go of our secure moorings and once we're drifting, we get swept away by the currents of the pleasures of sin. So antidote two, know your Christian duties and stick to them. Stage three, temptation conquers when unguarded inclinations meet opportunity. Sometimes we have strong inclinations to sin, but there's no opportunity to indulge in it. Other times we have opportunity, but we are busy with other things. But neither of these things is the same as the ability to resist temptation. We need to be especially mindful and careful when both inclination and opportunity present together. So antidote three, when inclinations to sin encounter opportunities, remember and keep God's commandments. And stage four, temptation unresisted leads to death. Death is a destruction of blessing. Death is separation from God. Death as decay, loss, And darkness, as Paul wrote, the wages of sin is death. Antidote four, always ask where an action will lead you and what its final destination will be before you become willfully or affectionately drawn into it. Live for the future in such a way that you will not be ashamed at Christ's coming. Peter wrote, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now it's bad news for us that we're born with Adam's sinful nature that we can't undo by our own efforts. Our relationship with God has been damaged before life even begins. But it's also good news in a way. Because the same principle of federal headship that attributes Adam's sin to us is turned around when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. For then, his federal headship applies to us instead of Adam's. And the righteousness of Christ is attributed to us instead of Adam's sin. And the end result will be our salvation. There will be failure for as long as we walk this earth until Christ finally returns. But our failure, our sin, is covered by his blood, by him who pleads our case in the courts of heaven. The first sin, Adam and Eve sin in the Garden of Eden, as we've read and as we'll see more about next week was paid for by a sacrifice, an animal was killed by God himself to provide a covering for Adam and Eve. And when we come together to share in communion, we're in a way, we're recreating and we're remembering that first offering, that first sacrifice only we're remembering the fulfilment of it by Jesus Christ rather than the picture of it that we see in the Garden of Eden where Jesus gave up his own body and shed his own blood to cover over not just our nakedness but our sin for eternity. That's some of the things that we learn as we read these early chapters of Genesis in Genesis chapter 3 especially our own righteousness, our own good works, our own efforts to behave correctly, to be generous to people, to give to charities, to do the right thing at work, to love each other in the hope that God will accept us like a loincloth made of fig leaves. There's no long substance to them. There's nothing that covers over, but the blood of Christ covers over forever. For all those who put their trust in him, this offering, this bread and this juice that we're about to drink represent blood that was shed and the covering garments of righteousness, the Bible calls it that cover us over instead of the loincloths of our own feeble works and efforts. So I invite you to stand now, if you're able to. Stand and just take a moment. Is there anything you need to bring before the Lord now? It's not a time to try and hide from him. He knows the sin anyway. He comes seeking us anyway. What is it that you need to bring before him and say, Lord, instead of hiding, I come to you to seek your mercy and to rejoice in the blood that was shed on my behalf to cover over that sin. Are there any relationships that have been fractured that need to be put right? You may not have the opportunity right now as we're standing here to do that. But I'd encourage you on the way home to call or to visit the person that relationship is fractured with and put it right sin has corrupted every part of our beings every part of the world but the blood of Jesus Christ provides forgiveness and cleansing from that sin the blood of Jesus Christ provides a righteousness accounted to us that will stand for eternity in the courts of heaven. So Lord Jesus, we celebrate this morning. We'll be regret that our sin and Adam's sin means that you had to die, but we celebrate, Lord, that your love was so great that you did it on our behalf to reconcile us to God. Now if you'd uh, just take a moment to eat and drink. Father, we thank you that you had a plan in place even before you created the universe, created the earth, created Adam and Eve, created us. You had a plan in place to deal with sin. Lord, we regret that it meant the death of your son on that cross, but we thank you, Lord, that you had it all worked out and that you called us from our own Situations from our own darkness, our own rebellion, our own sin. You came calling to us. Where are you? And Lord, by your Holy Spirit, you opened our hearts up to respond. Here I am, Lord. Here I am, Lord. And you have cleansed us, so we come before you, Father, with clear consciences because the blood of Jesus can never fail to cleanse from sin. Thank you, Father. I thank you for your word given to us. I thank you for the things it reveals to us about your nature, about your plan, about us as humans who are born in rebellion against you and about the plan of redemption to turn that around and welcome us as your sons and daughters and brothers and of Jesus Christ Father I pray for my friends here I pray for any who might hear this by by Zoom or by catch up later on Lord that you will do that work in everyone's heart to cause us to be grat- in gratitude to you and to follow hard after you Lord in Jesus name we pray this, Amen Thanks for listening to City Edge Church For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.